This is a becoming creature. Thank you for joining me on another episode of A Becoming Creature. I have a great one for you today. If you are not already subscribed, please subscribe on becomingcreature.substack.com. I would love to hear your feedback, but without further ado, here's the show. I am here today with Theodore Teddy Rackovelt. You can read his excellent blog, The Bully Pulpit, at www.raccovelt.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Teddy Rackovelt. Teddy, welcome. Thank you. May I say your voice is kind of sexy? Yes, and thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, no worries. I look, it's I'm not gay, but if I was, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if only my brain was as sexy as yours, I would be unstoppable. <laughs> yeah, my brain's really hot. If you look at all the <laughs> if you look at all the dimples on my brain, I've been told, you know, from multiple brain scientists that it's a really hot brain, so you know what I'm saying. Very greebled, a very mm. greebled brain. Don't, don't start, don't, don't <laughs> start. Please, no, 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 no greeble, no greeble discourse. It, it is, it is something else. Okay, so Teddy, you and I were on the phone the other night chatting, mm. and I was having a little to drink, and I was taking all these great notes about what we were going to talk about today. Sure. So I open up my notes the next day, and they said like, faith and fantasy and flirting yeah uh suffice it to say i don't know what any of that three means <laughs> three things that i'm three yeah. things that i'm terrible at by the way three uh. things that i am not good at <laughs> but if you want to bring any of that into the conversation you know that's cool. really up up to you but yeah. i just want to let you know that like i'm not coming from a basis of like master notes or it's anything totally fine i yeah could not gonna, get less gonna run through it but uh but yeah let's start with twitter yeah that's that's how we know each other. That is. Yeah. It's shocking, actually. I, when I first got <laughs> on Twitter, I was like, I am. I resolved to myself, I will mm. not make friends on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that didn't go so well. So. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe you'll get back to that hey, zero well, friendship. Yeah. You, know, yeah, you just got to get Hopefully edgy soon. enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what's your Twitter origin story? Oh, boy. Uh, this. Wow. <laughs> so. My Twitter origin story, a little bit of lore, is there used to be this old account, which I think some of the some of the post rat community and some of the community uh, conservative community will be familiar with. Uh, his mm -hmm. name was Proper Opinion, and mm -hmm. uh, he went through a little bit of a scandal. Uh, his scandal was that he wasn't who he said he was. Uh, he didn't have a fiance, so so he so he basically pretended that he. It's hard to to know actually like how much he made up, but he he definitely made up the fact that he had this fiance, and she had a he basically like said that she had a bunch of unfortunate things happen to her. It was so prop wow. used to be this actually pretty. He grew because he used to be pretty funny, and then once he hit a certain level, he like switched into like making his Twitter. He like talked about his personal life, uh, mm. his quote unquote personal life, and. You know, eventually people realized, you know, she had this mis the like the highlight of uh, this like saga was that he said she had a miscarriage and uh, and some people did some research and, and found out that that was actually 
impossible given other things he had said about her uh the way that he said it happened or something along those mm. lines anyway so he deleted his account and um <clears throat> you know me and a friend were like it's about 30 days after people delete their twitter accounts that handle becomes available again we could do something a little interesting here <laughs> uh and so and prop had about 220k followers uh-huh. uh, when he deleted uh so you know he was pretty infamous <laughs> at, at that point obviously for, for a good reason and so we uh at you know around 30 days we started like you know a couple times a day trying to make a twitter we made a twitter account and then tried switching its handle to proper opinion and we eventually got it mm-hmm. um and then set up his the account the exact same way that his has been set up <laughs> and then i think the first thing that i tweeted was hey guys sorry i've been gone uh a died of, <laughs> the fiance's name was a or that's how he referred to her i said a died of covid uh and this was like in march so it was it was it wasn't even like and i actually started to kill anyone yet damn and um i got a lot of attention we gained a lot of followers really quickly uh, and I sort of played it close to the chest. Um, I think that if people DM'd and asked if they were big accounts, I usually told them no, I wasn't him. But if they were smaller accounts or if I was just feeling mischievous, I'd leave it mm-hmm. sort of vague. Uh, but but we'd so we'd sort of did me and my friend. And then after a few days, he actually just let me do it because it turned out to be really complicated to mm-hmm. try to handle that kind of a thing between two people yeah so we ended up uh or i ended up for a couple months like playing between parroting him mm-hmm. and sort of pretending to be him um right i wasn't really sure what i wanted to do besides i thought it was funny i was really doing it because yeah. i thought it was funny and uh I, most well a lot of people realized pretty quickly that it wasn't him mm-hmm. um and then I don't know a month, like two months in, I was like, okay, that was fun, but now I kind of want to do my own thing. Uh, and yeah. so I, you know, I think I maybe I don't, I like I don't remember what I did, but over the time I like changed the handle. I changed, I kept the like raccoon thing because uh, he was, you know, he was branded as three raccoons in a trench coat, um, and I switched to. Uh, raccoon Yeshua, essentially the resurrected raccoon, um, was sort of like the idea, and mm-hmm. sort of was then tried to transition to my own thing. Um, some people, I think, were still skeptical. I think uh, Celine, uh, Ian's wife, yeah. uh, literally told me on the timeline that while she. Uh, you know, I, I announced, I like tweeted, I was like, oh, I didn't realize like so many people thought I was actually him. I'm not him. Here's <laughs> what happened. Right, right. And, you know, Selene was like, oh, thank goodness. But I'm still like going to be skeptical of you. And I was like, yeah, that's totally fair. So um, you might, you might be this guy. I, I could be this guy. I actually could be this guy. have some friends who know who he is. Uh-huh. Uh, which because is, you're friends. Yes, actually, actually because, because we're, yeah, he's actually me and I'm actually him. So, yeah, uh, yeah that's exactly correct. <laughs> I can't believe you got my secret out. Uh, yeah. Sorry about your wife, man. No, no, it's totally fine. You know, uh, I'll just make it up. I'll just make up another one. It's not really that big of a deal. Uh, 
Um, <laughs> anyway. So despite losing your wife, you still make some pretty good tweets. Yeah. And uh, so I, I would like if you would expand on some of these. Okay. Just, kind of <laughs> just tell me, tell me something you were thinking behind these. Sure. Uh, elaborate. Okay. Yeah. So, so the first is, of course, uh, high IQ people are mentally challenged in the opposite direction. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, something to tell people who, who follow me or who are thinking about following me or really thinking about unfollowing me after they've heard all this um, yeah. is, is after this, yeah. basically all of my tweets are half serious and half jokes, uh-huh. uh, which which I think infuriates some people when they try to understand my account. But anyway, so this tweet was um, prompted by this guy called Nick, um, who was responding to a, a young fellow in the community uh, who was, who's was trying to figure out how to go to college. And, and this young guy is clearly very intelligent, um, uh, a well, well-mannered young guy, smart, interesting and he was his advice was basically like go do drugs go follow in love with multiple people at a time don't uh-huh. go to college and uh-huh. i was like what the hell <laughs> what the are you talking about right. um uh exceptions to the rule are exceptions to the rule for a reason and it's really yeah. hard to know if someone's an exception to the rule uh, online and so okay so this is the background for that tweet the, yeah. So the, what do you mean by opposite direction? Like mentally challenged in the opposite direction? Yes. What, is, what does that mean? Okay, so high IQ people, um, what ends up happening to high IQ people is they become very successful at very, uh, very specific things, right? Like they can mm-hmm. read, they can read well, um, or they can't, they can like do this one specific thing well, right? Like, I don't know, they can do calculus well, or they can articulate thoughts well, or whatever. Right. So part of the part of the problem with this is that high IQ oftentimes this equates to two things. Either they naturally lack the facility or they simply neglect to develop it. Mm-hmm. And that is a little something that I like to call common sense. Um, and the reason for this is is high IQ people often because of the way that things are set up now for them. Uh, so society in in my estimation is basically and this is good i i don't actually have a huge problem with this but is is set up to push high iq people um above non-high iq people Uh, and so for that reason you get high iq people who don't actually understand the conditions which (laughs) which life exists at um and they don't understand the conditions which life exists at specifically for anyone under like 140 iq uh yeah. or even under like even under like 130 iq it, you just so they never actually experience um a very very specific so it's like if you think about it it's like the smart kid in high school right you every well most people listening to this the smart kid in high school right mm-hmm. they they everything came super easy to them right they probably didn't study very hard yeah. uh they probably you know flexed on everyone all the time or got bored at school and decided to like study their own things on their own time you know maybe they weren't good at homework and then they hit college and college mm-hmm. ends up being really difficult for them because they never learned how to study uh they didn't pick up the social skills of like you know sitting around you know in the study group with you know a bunch of like 
a bunch of normies, you know, that mm-hmm. there's a bunch of things you miss out on. Um, and if you're too high IQ, a lot of times that comes at the cost of other things. Um, it's almost, it's almost like you can't fit in because your brain is too specialized. Um, this, it sounds like you're kind of talking about the rationalists and, uh, Yudkowsky <laughs> right now. I'll be honest. I, I think I have, I don't know where I said this, but I believe, uh-huh. and this, I, I want to be very clear. I'm, this is not a dunk. Uh, it is, it's merely a, an analysis. I think that the rationalists and probably many of the post-rationalists are, uh, high IQ, mentally ill people who haven't found religion yet. Mm. Um, what does religion do? So religion provides, uh, provide. So, okay. So what you end up getting with a lot of rationalists and post-rationalists is they're both basically seeking the same thing, which is how to order the life and how to prioritize, how to value the way that they're ordering their life. Mm. To be honest with you, I have great admiration for, for how they want to do it because it is, the way they are trying to do it um, takes a lot of work, a, like a lot of work because there's, there's basically, there's not a whole lot of generations of development there. And even if there right. is, even if there's deep history behind some of these theories, no one's actually going back to those, you know, those past thinkers. They're all kind of trying to do it themselves. Um, and at least Christianity and I think religion in general ends up offering a far uh, deeper and more thorough framework mm-hmm. which to use to order and value life. I've actually been, I was thinking about this today um, while I was at the park with my dog. And the way I kind of see it is that you have these moral relativists yep. or um, you could call it like casuistry, which I think is, is a, a good example of this. Where casuistry, where they're looking at the example and and treating it as very specific and individual, and mm-hmm. um, kind of not being too tyrannical with their rules, but but trying to understand the nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like hierarchically, this is actually below a kind of like um, meta eternalism that I think is important in religion. And I think that a lot of um, what I would say, people that think about religion in a way that's not very high level spiritual, don't realize that there's like something above moral relativ- mm-hmm. relativism, which mm-hmm. is like trusting in something, yeah. right? So like trusting in God, trusting in yourself. So even the Jesuit who's practicing casuistry can be practicing this thing that looks like moral relativism, mm-hmm. but deep down they trust God to provide in every moment all the time. And so that ethical framework is actually what the moral relativism is like sitting on. Ironically, and I think this is going to trigger some people, and it, it's honestly supposed to trigger some people. I see a lot of the the rats and the post rats as being, uh, while not derivative, being uh, adjacent to the Randians in mm. thinking that to some extent they're not okay they're not as far gone and you know there's plenty of similarities blah blah, blah. I'll, I'll admit all that but there's a certain ideological similarity between the way that 
both the Randians and the rats slash post rats want to derive uh, meaning that that completely eschews these like traditional things, which are actually far more rich and uh, right and, and worthy of attention, uh, right. simply because they like. I think to some extent uh, either materialism or Marxism or, or a combination of both has infected the, you know, the, the high IQs in a way that they can't take, they, they have found themselves unable to take uh, religion and I'm, I'm separating religion and spirituality. They find themselves unable to take uh, religion seriously because of, you know, whether one of those two things basically. All right, so let's expand on that because I, I don't know what you mean. So how sure. are people taking materialism and Marxism and getting a, a corrupted view <laughs> of, of religion and, and yeah. say ethics or morality? So uh God, I haven't I actually haven't talked this out loud to myself, so I'm somewhat I'm gonna be a little incoherent here as I try sure. to as I try to uh, establish this. That's um, my brand. <laughs> uh so to some extent I think what happened with with Marxism? Marxism is the best example because it's just the most clear example. Uh, uh -huh. I think I think there are other you can get into French philosophy or whatever, and I'm not super familiar with them, so I'm not going to like talk about them a whole lot. But Marxism ends up taking this and saying this is the new science, and and you interpret the rest of the world through this lens. And this you do this because we are actually a science, and we actually have an explanation. Right. Right. So Marxism, Marxism, indelible mark upon there's there's a few ones. It's not actually Marxism, which which got left, but it's that tendency to take the thing and then allow everything to be filtered through that thing uh, because because we are in the age of rationality and reason right. and and human intellect has conquered all when in reality yeah. it hasn't right the first thing that i need to do to destroy that is to point out trump or to point out really any american politics be like really human rationality and reason has triumphed overall mm -hmm. um and so you end up with this <laughs> this sort of like ridiculous impulse that that uh History and tradition, especially in the American context, doesn't matter. And then you get this, this impulse, which is most evident in, in Marxism, but you can also see in things like materialism or other areas uh, mm -hmm. that says, in fact, history doesn't matter. Tradition doesn't matter. What matters is the, the, my intellect and my reason, and I can derive... I can derive everything through this. Right. The, the glorification of the intellect. And I, yes. I think that's one of the things that like that causes me to get like icked out by people that are super rationalist that, that mm -hmm. don't see it as like a component of yeah. what's going on right now. This ties into you didn't say the word, but this ties directly into your article on feminism. In your article on feminism, you wrote that. Feminism lost by accepting that it was masculine values, which were the desirable ones. Women had, in fact, always been inferior by doing things like spending time with their children and caring. What was needed was a new generation of women who spent all their time being men. 
Feminism's main complaint by its end was that men were preventing women from becoming men. Men, as Aristotle argued, were the highest form of human beings, and so to be equal meant allowing women to adopt masculine characteristics. Dot, dot, dot. The great misogynist tricked the feminists, telling women that the awful conditions which men require in order to feel fulfilled are what women should aspire to enter into. Um, and then you go on to say, and so the patriarchy has won. There is no meaning in corporate jobs or high salaries besides for those who are mentally ill. My interpretation of this, it, it gets into the Marxism thing you're talking about, is that the patriarchy kind of co-evolved with the capitalist idea that productivity is virtuous and that being owned by the capitalist idea was historically a male burden and feminism, or as you say in the article, third wave, fe third wave feminism in its desire for equality garnered the harness of this burden. So few questions here. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I guess, so you're talking about Marxism, but your criticism of, of what feminism has done is kind of like that the family unit has taken on the burden of capitalism. So most people think of capitalism and Marxism as at odds and like capitalism is, is the good guy and Marxism is the bad guy. But how do you see that dichotomy? So, okay. Uh, I am a capitalist insofar as capitalism is bad, but it's the best that we got. Yeah. If I'm going to defend capitalism, which I will, the, f the fact is, is that uh, reason is actually not advanced enough to, to not require markets. Um, right. The pro the problem with capitalism yeah. is actually very similar to the problem with Marxism. It's when it becomes a totalizing ideal. And right. so when I, you know, it is uh, somewhat ridiculous to say that an economic system can provide meaning um, or, right. or in, in a more, rigorous way it is ridiculous to say that an economic uh system can provide uh meaning which fulfills so it's so hmm. so so when i say men are mentally ill and that's that's why they need this is is because there's something uh i mean if you ever met a man especially a driven one you realize that there's something wrong there <laughs> right it's like to be the number one anything in the world, you must have something there, deeply look, wrong with just you. Just go and for if you want this yeah. proved, it's on Netflix, The Last Dance. You get to watch Michael Jordan. There's something yeah. wrong with Michael Jordan. Excellent. And he yeah. is great because of it. The problem is, yeah. and this is the same thing. Look, it's if you want a better example, if you want the example, just go look at Achilles, right? Like it's just it's obvious that should not have been the standard by which we sought the gain of meaning in society and feminism, right. uh, third wave feminism particularly, but there's sort of been a tendency. Th this is getting more into feminism that I know how to talk about. So I'm going to, I'm going to maintain a very limited here and say, I'm specifically talking about the tendency within modern feminism to say to grant the totalizing uh, ethic 
of capitalism and say, look, your career is a sufficient provider of meaning in your life. That is crazy. Mm -hmm. That is, look, I'm not saying, (laughs) please don't come for me. Uh, (laughs) What I'm not saying (laughs) is that like, that women should stay in the house or whatever, right? Like, but there right. needs there's a whole complicated conversation about the the, the interactions between men and sure. women in a society and how it's changing the modern world it's not what i'm getting at what i'm getting at is women lost because they said yes you're right this thing which we're not mentally ill enough to succeed at as much as men because we're normal right. is actually that which gives meaning and therefore we want to pursue it and that's a that is such a trap. So how should men and women um, approach this conflict that they find themselves in where um, they're looking at all of these ideologies, um, like different forms of feminist ideologies and, and coming from several church backgrounds? You have uh, all the different thoughts about what women should do. I guess this is too big of a question really to answer, but if you could just try, um, like in what way should people seek to develop meaning in their lives? God, uh, between men and women specifically, or just in general? Yeah. Regard regarding people and their interaction with like their, their femininity and their masculinity. Yeah, sure. So, um, look, I think you, there's, there's two things. Uh, number one, uh, an acknowledgement of differences is imperative. Uh, I think any society or any culture which tries, look, men and women are much, blah, blah, blah. Men and women are much more similar than they are different. Okay, now that's over. Look, acknowledge the dif- acknowledge the differences <laughs> and the real differences between femininity and masculinity. And, and furthermore, acknowledge that more men are more masculine and more women are more feminine. It is possible for those right. characteristics to pass over, but it is a helpful tool to be able to generalize and also acknowledge that there are different, that even every single man will have some feminine characteristics if you think hard enough about it, if you psycho, if you send them to enough therapists. Right. Okay, so sure. the second part of this is you have to build institutions which are capable of articulating well what Mm -hmm. femininity and masculinity mean and helping the individual to translate that into their life. Whether that is parents, whether that is the church, whether that is a form of the Boy Scouts where little boys are not getting raped. uh, Like there, there are a lot of options, but you actually do need uh, environments which can teach boys and girls to understand what it is to grow into men and women. So we're talking a little bit about meaning and you've said suffering is a requirement of human Mm -hmm. existence. You've also said uh, you have to have something bad in your life and people need evil. And uh, so can you expand on what you mean about about suffering and um, maybe like tie in your experience with depression or yeah. Lyme disease, all this stuff and how it may have shaped uh, the way you think about meaning. Uh, I'm assuming I will, maybe I'm going to get some flack here. Uh, so I'll give you quick personal 
uh, experience and then sort of mm-hmm. what my thinking is about this. So um, sure. I have suffered from both very intense depression and I, I almost died because of undiagnosed chronic Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am still a, a young lad. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm in my early 20s, let's say. Um, so I've had, I think, a little more than the typical American. Uh, and mm-hmm. I found those experiences formative for the for my perspective on life and for my ability. So exa- for example, my relationship with my parents transformed during my recovery from Lyme disease. Um, why was that? It is because suffering taught me a bunch of lessons that it would have taken me maybe decades to fully understand Mm. had I not gone through them. It taught me, for example, that my parents actually did love for me and wanted to care for me and were much wiser than I had given them credit for. Mm. One of the things, and you know, the, one of the things that the Bible says is that suffering suffering does a lot of things but one of the ways things that it does is it teaches you how to love other people and it teaches you specifically how to love and care for other people who are also going through suffering Mm. um okay so there's there's that why do i think suffering is essential um number one If you don't have suffering as a society, let's say you're a modern industrialized uh, capitalist society who might be a global hegemon and people are maybe, let's just say hypothetically, the most rich they've ever been in the entire entire history of humanity and all these things. And all of a sudden, for some reason, people are getting super depressed. Right. People will create suffering for themselves if they don't have it. And the reason for that is because is for several reasons. Number one, humans actually don't know what to do without it. If your life is good, like life can be good for like a month or maybe a year. But if you go through your whole life without suffering, uh, you will go crazy, I think. Uh, because, because you don't actually have any perspective. There's no way for you to understand or to in any way care for, let's say, a mother who lost her son, if you do not have a frame of reference for understanding that pain. In addition, there is no way for American society to care about, let's say, African society without an understanding of what society is. You cannot have charity uh, or you cannot have truly understanding and good intentions towards someone and wanting to help them without having had suffering yourself because if you do that person will see that you ultimately are doing it out of pity and not out of understanding and will resent you for it and they will resent you for a good reason this is like dr manhattan from watchmen Mm. he was so perfect that he essentially lost his humanity right and like you could do like a read of superman and it's difficult to even see why superman gives <laughs> like cares at all you know yes because like they give him humanity but you don't see any like reason yes superman is a fundamentally bad character i, I think everyone right. can kind of 
But so so it's kind of obvious that humanity is kind of a, a function of one's memory of of their own personal suffering yep. in some way. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like you can make jokes about anything, mm-hmm. but then once something bad happens to you, you can become a lot more sensitive about how that might land. A very important thing to understand is is that imagination. Uh, requires a range of experience, which includes suffering. So, Mm -hmm. for example, it is actually incredibly hard for Americans to interpret history because many of them have had such a standard of living that it becomes impossible for them to understand what historical conditions were like and therefore learn lessons from it. It's like yoga in America versus yoga in India are not the same. Mm -hmm. Yes, precisely. So... You're a champion of religion, and yet you've called Jesus the biggest loser. (laughs) A bit of background on me. I grew up a fundamentalist, creationist, evangelical, born-again Christian. Uh, So let's talk Christianity. Yeah. What does modern Christianity get wrong? Uh, So modern Christianity has this problem where it fundamentally misunderstands. And I'm actually going to talk about specifically American Christianity, because mm-hmm. if you look at places like Africa, uh, this their conception is completely different. Okay. So right. let's look at, um, let's look at American Christianity. American Christianity, I think has, is turning into a tendency to become what I've termed uh, personally uh, emotional prosperity gospel and, and let me unpack that for a second so a lot of so you have prosperity gospel prosperity gospel is super obvious super easy to understand right it's joel olstein saying if you believe well god is going to give you you know a nice new car or he's going to fill your bank account or whatever. he's going to reward you tantamount to the faith you've exhibited right your life will be easier because you have good faith okay right so that's pretty easy to understand Emotional prosperity gospel, I think this is maybe more typical among younger people, um, millennials and, and Zoomers, I think, um, although I think it's bleeding upwards, much like much like wokeness bled mm. out of the universities upwards. I think uh, pros- emotional prosperity gospel is doing the same thing. So what's happening is you get these uh, you you get these kids who have never really read the Old Testament, kind of only know like the stories of the Gospels, and what ends up happening is uh, you have the Trinity, and they misunderstand the character of God the Father, and what they end up seeing him as is essentially um, a Christmas Day dad, where his job is is to make their life better because their faith is better and the way that he does that is he makes them feel emotionally more secure because that's the biggest challenge that many young folks uh have ended up facing in their life is uh, emotional instability so so what happens is is if you have faith right the the narrative becomes the stronger your faith the more secure you will feel that God um, has control over your circumstances. And it's not technically wrong in the sense is that you should actually have faith in God, no matter, uh, you know, if you're locked in prison about to be, you know, executed, right, as as Peter is, you know, right, at the point right. of Acts, or 
Um, or if you're like in your hammock by the beach, like you should probably, you should feel the same about your circumstances in either way, because God has control. Um, the, the problem is, is that American Christianity lacks a fundamental understanding of the fear of God. And I'm going to talk about three quick things here. Sure. That illustrate this. These, these are three f- stories, which Christians and non-Christians maybe have not heard or not understood. Uh, and which are very important. So here's one, and this is a, a very typical story from the Old Testament. Um, there's a group of three guys that basically rebel against Moses and, you know, by consequence, they rebel against God uh, because they want him to step down basically as leader of the Israelites because they really they hate wandering around in the wilderness, even though it's their own fault they're wandering around. Fair enough. Right? And God says, hey, you three go stand here with all of your, with your households and with your families uh, and with your kids and with your goats and all that. And then the ground opens up and they all fall in this big chasm and, you know, presumably die. Okay. Right. And that's like, that's crazy. It's the modern sensibility you hear God killed like these dudes, kids because of their sins. That's, that's not great. Um, okay. So, but, but Jesus solves that, right? Jesus creates um he he cr- makes god okay in the new testament we have a couple of interesting stories uh, anias and anias and sapphira i think is how you pronounce their name i always get it wrong uh, uh-huh. they come they sell a piece of land they come to peter and they offer him like a small portion of the proceeds but they tell him it's the whole thing actually mm-hmm. anias comes in first and he tells him it's the whole thing and peter goes um You've lied to me, uh, but you've essentially, I think, has, I, I'm butchering the story, but essentially you've disrespected, you've lied to God. Uh, right. And Ananias dies. The Holy Spirit kills him for, uh, for lying to the Holy Spirit or something along those lines. And then Sapphira, his wife, comes in, same thing happens. That's terrifying, right? right. Herod, later on, and Acts is basically being called uh, the voice of God, I believe, um, by the crowd. And because, and it says, because he didn't give the glory to God, uh, he actually is killed and eaten by worms. I, and I don't know if that's actually eaten by worms, like he was like eaten by worms as he died, or he died and they buried him and he was eaten by worms. Um, right. The point of these quick three stories is that American Christianity doesn't would not recognize that God. Hmm. God is good he is loving he is kind he is a savior and he is also terrifying and do respect and surrender and all these things it's fun i think we fundamentally misunderstand a powerful god who is worthy of surrender and respect there's no conception of that in american christianity and it kills american christianity because because American Christianity lacks energy. Hmm. American Christianity ends up becoming designed to soothe the senses and make you feel good in your suburban home for a week until you can get to the next service. Right. Never asks or demands anything. And it is it's a great failure. It's kind of the other side of the coin when you're talking about, you know, even if you're in prison, have mm-hmm. trust in God. That trust and fear are, are very similar. So I can give you a quick story that sure. when I was very young, I'm talking like 
five or six, I started getting interested in this girl, not sexually, obviously, but she was just highly salient to me. And over time, that turned into very strong feelings. And we went to school together. Mm -hmm. And I was in that school until I was 16. And my parents said, you cannot date or be with a girl until you're 16. Mm -hmm. And I did not agree with that (laughs) demand. However, I was a Christian, which meant that anything that I do that is non-obedience to God is going to lead me away from the path of God. Mm -hmm. And so I will only be hurting myself. Mm -hmm. So I was crazy about this girl, literally, like my (laughs) whole life, up until I was 16. She even asked me out at one point, Uh and I said, no, I can't. Because of God, yeah. right? So this was the kind of guy I was, and but 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 I had I it wasn't really a fear that like God would strike me down. And I didn't fear hell either, but it was just a recognition, a trust, I guess, in God that like if I did not obey Him, I would really be suffering. I would I would be creating damage to my myself and my life. Mm-hmm. Um, that would bring me away from the future God intended for me or hoped that I would fulfill or something like that. Um, I mean, I didn't really have a a really nuanced view, but that that was my life at that time. And then after 16, like I kind of was like, oh man, I think they sold me a bill of goods. And I I became an atheist and new atheist, you could probably say, Uh Um, which I, I no longer identify with, but this isn't really about my own personal religion. Um, but the point is that I, I kind of see what you're what you're saying about like the trust and the fear and everything. Do you have anything to add regarding like faith and submission yeah, and, one, and how this leads to freedom? Yeah, one thing. So uh, someone who does this way better than I could probably ever hope to do is unsurprisingly C.S. Lewis um, in his mm-hmm. book, The That's Hideous true. Strength. Uh, he the the protagonist is. Um, well, there's sort of two protagonists. It's, it's this husband and a wife who start out with an estranged marriage. Um, and by the end, they're sort of reunited in this more, what Lewis essentially is, is this more proper attitude towards marriage. And they both like really hate learning the lessons <laughs> that they have to learn. <laughs> and one of the lessons that the wife ends up learning and the one that she very strenuously objects to is submitting to her husband even though her husband Mm. sucks yeah sucks and look we can have i am not wise enough to have a discussion about gender roles especially in marriage i quite simply am not married i really haven't dated anyone for that long i'm not wise enough i'm going to respectfully avoid that but um it is outside of like the context of marriage and outside of all this you end up getting a really really thoughtful wise and interesting exploration about the way that submission fulfills your relationship to god Mm -hmm. um and if you are skeptical and if you also enjoy really good fiction and really good writing i highly recommend going and grabbing that hideous strength uh and be critical like be skeptical just like the protagonist because at the very least you will encounter one of the strongest arguments for the value of submission um especially jarring considering the culture that we're raised in that views submission as almost 
almost an evil anyway. Lewis is is so excellent. Actually, his book, uh, The Screw Tape Letters, mm-hmm. is it's so good. Especially if yes. you come from a Christian background, it's just so incredibly enjoyable. Yeah, and uh, yeah, a lot of people, you know, they know him for Narnia, but I think Narnia's not as deep and important as many of his other works. But anyway, so so on this topic, um, can you dig into your thoughts on polyamory and um, natalism? Oh God. Those are those are separate subjects, but also very. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I'll say this. I think you know, given my religious background, it's pretty obvious where I'm going to stand on polyamory. I think polyamory polyamory is like essentially kind of scary to a society. Number one, I yeah. I think look if you're going to be into polyamory, please at least don't encourage other people to be into it because if a lot of people catch on, it ends up being uh, somewhat corrosive at at the macro level. Uh, mm. Look, if you want more incels, then keep on pushing polyamory. Uh, it's a great way to just suffuse a generation of men into incel behavior. Uh, the other thing is on polyamory is um, it is a great way to be really selfish and not learn how to serve anyone. I, I'm going to say that I am not a good guy, right? Like I have plenty of things wrong with me please comment on my Twitter and be like, you're a terrible person. And I will hundred percent agree with you. Uh, there's many mm-hmm. things wrong with me. Uh, polyamory indulges the selfish impulse because the point of polyamory really is to serve yourself and make yourself feel better. Really good relationships work because you care about the other person way more than you care about yourself. And you will sacrifice in order to make them happy and fulfilled. Uh, no relationship actually works that way. It's much more difficult. Uh, but I think polyamory stands in the way of self-sacrificial behavior. Mm. On natalism, uh, natalism is the only thing that uh, have having kids. Okay, look, again, I'm talking from, <laughs> I don't know anything about having kids. But I have a, a younger brother who is much younger than me, um, who... Uh, and I am an oldest sibling, and so I was responsible uh, for a decent amount of his raising, especially considering he was special needs. And I have a few, uh, quite a few other siblings, and so my parents' attention was uh, diverted. Um, mm-hmm. And so I simply think that uh, your life becomes recontextualized when you have kids, and in a way that you just simply cannot understand. Um, if you do not have kids in a way that I probably cannot understand right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And you pretty much require kids to put a proper, uh, to contextualize your life properly. Um, In addition, uh, having one kid is simply a way to, (laughs) to try to extend yourself. Having Mm -hmm. five kids is a great way to learn how to serve other people. Uh, And, uh, so I am very pro-natalism. I'm also pro-natalism simply because I think the more people who are devoted to the um, to the cause and to the trade of child rearing as parents who aren't really just like having kids because they're having kids, but are devoted to like raising a child right. uh, and raising children. I think that number one, that improves society because um, you get a bunch of 
former individuals who become parents and suddenly realize that life is a little more meaningful than being uh, devoted to themselves. I'm going to jump here on a, on a topic that I've actually never talked to anyone about. Go ahead. But that I the so the end point of a lot of things that people praise is the destruction of mankind. Mm -hmm. So yes. if you look at capitalism, right, what the capitalist idea is doing. And even though it's really, really good most of the time up until the end, the end is we create like AGI that destroys <laughs> mankind, yep. right? Like that's what it go, like that's where it goes. That's what happens. And this is also true of like Buddhism. Like you have all these bodhisattvas that are trying to make everybody enlightened or whatever, mm -hmm. but the end of that path is like people stop procreating. Yes. Wait, Chesterton has a great quote on this. Keep talking. Uh, let me let me go find my book, my Chesterton. Hold on, hold on one sec, one sec. <laughs> but simply, my, my point is really that you have to be looking at these ideas at a really, really high level to kind of understand that they're not fundamentally good, that everything is kind of in balance with everything else. And when you're using these things and when you're thinking about these things, they don't exist in a vacuum, right? And they, they're they not always leading to a place that's best for everyone. And just because society is getting richer and richer and richer doesn't mean it's necessarily good. And that's why like a I, I disagree with a lot of people that are talk about how like the flourishing of mankind is just in, inherently good. And I'm like, you have to be a little bit careful about what that <laughs> means mm -hmm. because it might lead to the destruction of humanity, you know? So yes. I don't know. This, yes. I've literally never put words to this, but I do feel this way. No, and I this a hundred percent. This is a hundred percent true. Uh, when when an idea transforms itself into anim animism, so once an idea has taken possession of a pers person, its usual end, taken to its extent, is destruction. Uh, on Buddhism, let me read this real quick. This is it's not super long, but this is what Chesterton says on Buddhism. And this is essentially uh, a passage in which he's arguing that Buddhism is best understood as a philosophy rather than a, rather than a religion. Mm -hmm. Um Okay, so I'm going to read, and this is about this is about half a paragraph, so it's not too long. Uh, Buddha proposed a way of escaping from all this recurrent sorrow, and that was simply by getting rid of this, the delusion that is called desire. It was emphatically not that we should get what we want better by restraining our impatience for it, or that we should get it in a better way or in a better world. It was emphatically that we should leave off wanting it. If once a man realized that there really is no reality, that everything, including his soul, is in dissolution at every instant, he would anticipate disappointment and be intangible to change, existing in so far as he could be said to exist, in a sort of ecstasy of indifference. The Buddhists, right. the, the, the most important point, which gets to your point, the Buddhists call this beatitude, and we will not stop our story to argue the point, certainly to us, it is indistinguishable from despair. Like him or not, and like his argument or not, it's a very interesting point that Buddhism and many, many other things taken to their fullest extent and given their full head end up in destruction. That's 100% correct. So how do we respond to this? Mm. Like, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like you got to where some kind of ego like if anybody's like glimpsed um you know the big eye or, or anything big they also realize that they have to kind of come down earth 
They need to interact with desire in a certain way and just try not to be owned by it. And so there is this participation. Um, and I think it was, I think it was KS Prime, but they said that like the most important thing is not to fall into any of the gravity wells of any single ideology that like you can zip through them and use them to slingshot around. But if you get too close, they, they'll consume you. I think that the key to, to not getting absorbed, uh, just do not get absorbed into an idea. Uh, take its observations and its critiques uh, thoughtfully and take its recommendations skeptically and look to do rather than to think usually. So uh, I loved your article where you talk about like anthropology <laughs> and um, I thought it was actually like the style of it was phenomenal and I could probably write uh, an article of equal length just discussing the your little flourishes in this one. <laughs> but, uh, but ultimately my question is like, what do you think is wrong with the social sciences. This is actually like a repeating question on my podcast because yeah. it always seems to come up. But so when we think of like, I actually think anthropologists are really cool because they don't like try to be scientists so much mm -hmm. compared mm -hmm. to like psychologists that want to be compared to, you know, like biologists essentially. And so how do you think of like social sciences generally, what do they do wrong and how should somebody that's interested in social studies aspire to um, practicing their work? Yeah, so uh, a few things. Number one, um, you should be very, I think one thing to say about reading my articles is to be very careful what you believe in my articles. Um, <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite professors actually in college was an anthropologist. Uh -huh. um, uh, so I actually do actually believe many of my critiques in anthropology. And yeah, I still actually like anthropology much, much more and respect it much, much more than the other social sciences, because I actually think it's trying to do the right thing. Um, the problem with the social sciences is essentially you're trying to discover human nature through the scientific method and through data. And I hate to say it, but uh, Freud is actually the one who got the closest and Freud was hundred percent wrong. <laughs> um, and so I, I think what ends up happening in the social sciences is that the social sciences are essentially grifts for people who wanted to be artists, but didn't have the talent. Right. Um, and so they're fascinated by humans and they, they have like some, in, they, they, they find themselves drawn to, you know, what, what are these things they they're drawn they're drawn to important questions but without the talent to actually explore explore those questions so so what ends up happening is they take pre-constructed tools that are very useful in a very specific context and they warp them to their own needs and their own desires um, and then what happens is the replication crisis um, and i think that those those uh, places are essentially bankrupt. Um, I do not believe that there is value in examining uh, human nature in an academic setting past the exploration of art um, mm. and the exploration of literature. Um, right. I think that the scientific method is is definitionally unsuitable to the application of human nature and that algorithms will not help you discover what 
what humans want to do. The only thing that a theory can possibly do is predict behavior in a short time period, probably at most the next 100 years of society reliably. The the political and science are two words which are categorically opposed to one another and should not have ever been put into one one conglomeration. Right. And to get back to the point where you're talking about the social sciences and art... Mm. Um, like when I think of therapy and when I think of psychology, a lot of that actually just seems to be creating a framework such that a narrative is sufficiently persuasive mm-hmm. such that somebody feels in control of their own life. Mm-hmm. And that's all it has to do. And Freud was really good at this, mm-hmm. that he didn't have to be right. He just had to be persuasive. Yeah, I think mythology is actually a much better version of psychology. Uh, so uh, sort of getting back to Chesterton, Chesterton basically says the mythology is not why did the, these things happen? It is why cannot these things be done? Um, and it, it's a call to humans to emulate uh, and, to, uh, and a call for the interpretation of certain values into the personal life. Um, you, I mean, you could argue with this historical interpretation, but as but as a psychological phenomena, it's really interesting. I think it's much more helpful. The other thing uh, on a practical level level with things like therapy is therapists aren't actually incentivized to cure you. Um, right. What they're incentivized to do is to continue to convince you that they have solved one of your problems, but there are other deeper problems that you have yet to solve. Uh, it's a really big problem. I'm surprised that no one's really talked about it. Uh, there's no real desire. They don't gain anything from actually fixing you. Um, right. So anyway, that that's my I have not great feelings on therapy, but I I actually wouldn't probably not go as far to say like the NRX guys and you know those guys who who categorically reject therapy I think are wrong. Uh-huh. Um I think though that the celebration of therapy so before my second account got banned, my first iteration of Teddy Rackabelt uh got banned. I had posted a uh, a meme which went somewhat viral. It was um, of that plane with the bullet holes in it. I'm sure most people sort of know what I'm talking about. Survivor, it's talking about survivorship bias. Uh, and then I had in quotes, uh, therapy, uh, th- therapy is really helpful. Um, therapy is great for a very small amount of people who have mm-hmm. issues that they probably already understand that they have, but don't have the tools to deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. And you never hear from the huge amounts of people who either never get out of therapy or went to therapy once or twice, found it incredibly unuseful and just never went back. So what do you think about Jordan Peterson? Jordan Peterson, uh, really good for young men, uh, for young men in particular circumstances who are suffering from the loss or suffering from two things. They're suffering from a loss of institutions who, uh, can teach them what masculinity is. And they're also suffering from a society which actually doesn't know what masculinity should look like anymore. And so you get a bunch of young men who are running around having no idea what to do with their lives. Um, And he's really good for them because he says, look, there are actually some things that you can do. Uh, They're really simple and I'm distilling them down for you here. Um, What Jordan Peterson is not good at is a lot of other things. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I really, cause I watched dear friends of mine actually um, 
learn a lot from him and perhaps not reform their lives because they weren't exactly in need of reform, but become much better men. Right. Um, what I didn't see was Jordan Peterson changing a whole lot of people's minds on or having a very good influence by introducing phrases like cultural Marxism. We were talking a little bit about political science earlier, and uh, it reminded me of um, your your piece where you mentioned Feinstein. And so when you're looking at a Congress of representatives of increasing senility and dementia, what does that mean for America? Like, what does that mean about the sovereignty of one's votes for their representatives if those representatives are senile and, and demented? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> a couple things. Um <sighs> So I, um, I don't, I somewhat infamously, I don't know how many people actually saw this, but I somewhat infamously argued around the election that your vote didn't actually matter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I have also argued that um, basically every single modern cultural movement is a reaction against the boomers in some way, shape, or form, against their institutional and entrenched power. Mm-hmm. When you, so there's been a lot of thought given to the crumbling of institutions that you know a lot of people have asked why is this happening there's a really easy answer for that and the easy answer for that is we extended life expectancy without thinking about the ramifications of not expanding vitality at the same time look i'm not one of those people that says uh people shouldn't live pat i'm not a uh, joe biden you know uh officer who runs around saying, you know, people shouldn't last, live past the age of 75. Right. Um, but there there are ramifications for saying we should extend life expectancy indefinitely without also expanding vitality. Um, there are there were certain norms for the governance of institutions where a generation would rise, be governed by those older than it, be mentored, be taught, and it would inevitably rise to those positions of power as the old generation would understand that it was now time to hand off the reins. Right. And that new generation would have grown up with new understanding of the world, new experiences, and a, and a, lot, of, uh, and a lot of understood wisdom. And this was important even in an age where things didn't change very quickly. Right. And so what ends up happening in the new age is we, we've extended life expectancy while also experiencing one of the most selfish generations to have existed in American history, which is the boomers. So the boomers are now living much longer and, and they're unwilling to honor the unwritten contract, which is you give up the reins of power when the new generation is ready for it. Um, right. And now this is typically when the son assassinates the father, right, and takes the reins of power. But, but obviously our society is a little more robust and so we're not going to have any sun you know mounting a coup and so what ends up happening is is you get this this aging incompetent um, non uh, non virile uh, generation who is unwilling to let go of the reins of power at the same time as society is speeding up and is speeding up in a way that has mm. never been seen before and right. what you really need at a time like this is actually uh, people to maybe move into positions of power more quickly in order to preserve institutions because those institutions need to change more rapidly 
uh, in response to social conditions. This doesn't mean like you're throwing aside the the, hmm. the purpose of those institutions. Yeah. But the institutions need to be able to react uh, and change and understand the new challenges, right? And the the easiest example of this, and the one that I used in my article, sort of about this, was the tech hearings that have been had. You know where where you get these really old senators asking essentially about their junk mail. When the real question is, you know, you probably want some senators up there who like have a, maybe a really basic understanding of blockchain technology, right? right? And that gulf is so wide. And so what ends up happening is then people people instinctively feel that they that there's been an injustice done and that these institutions so they so the the institutions what they're supposed to control have been unjustly withheld from them and that the institutions are incompetent and so they seek a way to tear down the institutions in order to build power from themselves and because the institutions aren't actually effective and the reason so the reason that they can tear down those institutions is because they're universally recognized as being ineffective right. so you get things like the on the right like the integralists and the Trumpists and like these, like this weird amalgamation of people like trying to figure out how to make like a new institution and a new intellectual movement on the left, you get wokeism uh, and wokeism is really particularly interesting because it takes this like American moral impulse and weaponizes it against right. these institutions. Uh, and what ends up is the boomers end up being, uh, being destroyed uh and so it's a really interesting so actually i think pr pretty much a much upheaval ends up becoming this weird intersection of these you know this disparate set of factors right. within american society so there's this tension between what you're talking about earlier which is that um the wisdom of tradition must be maintained mm -hmm. but you're also saying that progress should be allowed to run free so i'm i'm considering this tension like how <laughs> how does that work how do we maintain the wisdom of tradition while allowing even faster iteration that's a really difficult question for a secularized society i think if i'm looking at it like if i have ultimate control i can set the parameters anyway the easiest way to do this is to set a somewhat religiously homogenous society that has a pretty shared understanding of certain frameworks and moral values. Mm. The problem that America faces, and also its great strength, right, and it has always been this way, is the diversity, right? We've right. always been a pretty diverse country and that's had problems, but it also has great strengths. Um, right. And so in times of relative calm, you end up having a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and in times of great crisis, you end up having great strength. And so America sort of ends up facing this weird, this very odd tension where we are, we're sort of lose where our, our shared uh, context and framework for understanding is slipping away, even though, Christianity and, and or many Christian values are still sort of at the the ethos of of um, the society. And if you don't think that's true, just go uh, read Confucius, right? And then come mm -hmm. back to America and be like, oh, okay, these are this is not it's not the same, um, right? And uh, so so that's this is sort of the problem. So that's the easiest solution. Uh, what's a realistic solution? Uh, the boomers dying out. Uh, that I think 
is a little morbid um mm-hmm. and uh but most change actually happens generationally right. and i don't particularly see a real way forward until senators like feinstein are out of power um and that simply means that you need to work on building the the what ought to happen is people ought to experiment with building new things until access to the old things becomes available and they can be reformed. Hmm. So I wanted to touch on a question from Scott Hansen, mm. who asked, if you think the responsibilities and methods of a satirist are or should be any different now than they were before industrial publishing and the internet age of contextless debate. Oh, um, God, that's a tough question. That's a complicated question. Um, I think, uh, I think that you can actually be more clever because people have access to Google. I actually think that the responsibilities of satire lean more heavily on the audience now than they did. Um, so, huh. so the the satirist in in a non information age has to make information more explicitly available to the audience um, because it's less accessible. Yeah, the audience was necessarily broad. Right, exactly. And so, for example, right, what what I want to do when I write a modest proposal is I want to take something that most people are already familiar with, right? Right. Um, What I can do now, what I can do now as a satirist um, to the extent that I am a satirist, uh, is that I can take something niche and I can put a bunch of links or videos into something and say, look, here are the resources that you need. Um, I'm going to say some things that that will strike you as uh, irreverent or perhaps even sacrilegious or something. Right. And your responsibility as an audience is if you actually care about the satire uh, that that you engage with it um, and that I'm actually forcing you to learn something. So I actually think that the satirist has a much broader range of options now, given that he can incorporate information from anywhere into a satire or her satire. So you tweeted, uh, beware of overly nice twitter accounts Mm -hmm. it's clear that you're not nice but why (laughs) why don't you think other people should be uh it's not that i don't think other people should be nice it's that you should be wary of people who are only nice Mm. um what's that so there are two main reasons number one someone who and there are plenty of people like this in real life and i have no malice against them, but the people who are, whose primary personality characteristic is being nice often either lack life experience um, mm. or lack thought. Uh, and look, I've been dunking on thinkers all day. However, a person who is simply nice is, I think, often someone who has been suffused by culture to the point where they have failed to think about their personality and try to develop it. Um, and so often a person who's only nice is often someone who actually doesn't have, um, who hasn't like really tried to push themselves into something, especially 
And I would say a very important addition to both of these sides is especially men. I think this changes a lot for women because women are simply better than <laughs> simply better than men. Uh, and on the other side, people who are only nice uh, in behavior. So there's a difference if you have a really nice personality, um, that is often a sign that there that there's a lack of thought behind who they have become. Um, so and so I simply the reason for that is is I saw a lot of people like that in college and decided I didn't want to do that. Um, the other side of that is that someone whose behavior or uh, brand is primarily nice or only nice, especially again, especially if they're male, often has ulterior motives because being nice to people, hmm. which you can separate out, by the way, from things like being kind to people is too, I'm using nice very, very specifically, right. uh, often has ulterior motives. It is a very good way to get things from people because oftentimes there is a sense of obligation or um, it's a very good way to get people to be vulnerable with you or a variety of things. It's a niceness is a, a tool for many people. And a lot of people don't understand that people actually use niceness as a tool for other things. I've got a lot of takes on niceness. And <laughs> when I, if someone calls me nice, I actually get offended. Like, yep. <laughs> like, like if somebody is like, oh, you're so nice or, oh, I like him because he's nice. I'm like, you like me because of what? Yeah. I'm nice. Yeah. That I, I gave them the wrong story. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm on board. My, my rant would be slightly different, but I want to move on here. Yeah, sure. And um, so you're interested a bit in cooking and fashion. I'm <laughs> curious on, um, on how you think of like taste and style, hmm. because I'm also, I'm really into cooking, um, mm -hmm. home cooking. I'm into restaurants. I love fashion. I have some, a little bit of a background in writing and fashion. And I think these things are all, all kind of tied together with mm -hmm. art and everything. It gets to something aesthetic and important. So could you tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, so food and fashion are the gateways to conservatism, in, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Uh, what does that mean? So so I think someone, I don't remember who it was. Uh, someone said uh, conservatives are primarily interested in aesthetics. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not entirely correct but it's also very very correct um <laughs> and so the deal with uh the deal with both of these is essentially both of them require attention hmm. i think that one of the most interesting things about both of these is in a modern world when we are incredibly starved for attention they require you not only attention in the moment, but actually attention outside because you have to learn the con the conceptual uh, the concepts behind these things. Mm -hmm. In addition, they also allow you to interpret other people. So when you be when you learn about them, now look, there's don't judge a book by cover. Plenty of other things, but they become useful tools both in uh, displaying and interpreting. Right. Food and fashion also help define communities. Uh, food more so. I think food helps build communities more so than fashion. But right. both of those actually extend m m much farther past the individual. 
Um, in some senses, you can think of them as alternative languages. Yes. Um, yep. And uh, in, the, in the same way that I think, like, for example, you can knowledge of soccer, right, or knowledge of any sport, but I'm using soccer because it's the most universal, right? Knowledge of soccer uh, is really great because you can often interpret someone's personality by the way that they play. You can often interpret a person, an individual or a community by the, by the way that they dress or the way that they cook within a given cultural context. Uh, soccer, like sports, tend to be a little more universal, but as long as you're sharing a similar cultural context, then you can use cooking and clothing as ways to speak about yourself or your community given that context. The way I like to think of this is that even though we might be mowing down the natural ecosystem, we still have these ecosystems like language, mm -hmm. like fashion, like food, where these things are, are, are thriving. And one of the reason why the descriptivists are always going to be um, correct and the prescriptivists are always going to be wrong is because all these things are alive. It's like, it's like the skin on a tree, right? Mm -hmm. You can say so much about the rings inside the tree, but the life is, is right there on the edge and that's where we are. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think about it that the, the great thing about all of these things and the sad thing about McDonald's or, or people that only eat fast food is that they're not participating with the ecosystem. It's the equivalent of never walking in nature. It's, it's the equivalent of, you know, working in an office and, and otherwise living in a car and otherwise living in your apartment. It's you are being mm -hmm. removed from the beauty of the world. And uh, these ecosystems allow you to pursue that depth. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, something like McDonald's essentially allows you to outsource uh, social participation. McDonald's is is wonderful as <laughs> the a right scapegoat. Way. Yes, you know, <laughs> yes, <laughs> because it it just has so much going for it. Um, it's like, well, let's turn people into machines. Woo! So, <laughs> so yeah, I actually one of my professors wrote about the McDonaldization of America. So that's also a really. Uh, that's an easy thing to access. The, now, the, the, the thing is, is McDonald's is actually successful because of the American attitude on food. Uh, right, yeah. right. So uh, oftentimes things become uh, institutionalized because of pre-existing uh, unformalized social conditions. Uh -huh. uh, and McDonald's, the McDonald'sification of America, uh, it's, it's, it's the other way around. It's the Americanification of McDonald's, I think. Yeah, the Americanification of food. Yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I want to ask you one last question before sure. you go. I've taken up a lot of your time. And uh, that question is, why is imperialism good? <laughs> Man, that is a tough one. Uh, imperialism is good insofar as it's not actually as bad as people make it out to be um mm -hmm. imperialism is a is a political set sort of organization which can be bad or good depending on how it's depending on how it is uh enacted however a, a really great example of non-coercive imperialization uh is actually uh modern america um, right. I, you know, if you're familiar with Lindy man, he sort of talks about this. I don't think in maybe as much detail as, uh, he, he talks about it in detail in some of his essays. Um, but 
but imperialism is there. So there are two ways in which you can uh, enforce or you can encourage rule. There are, there are two ways. There are, there's force and there's power. There are two separate measures of rule. Force um, is is uh, is obvious, right? That is something that you essentially spend money on, and you use it to enforce your will on a populace, right? Power right. is a much uh, less, much more nebulous term, but essentially, power is self reinforcing, uh, while uh, while force um, is is costly, and right. so passive versus active, very almost. yes, very very similar. And so an empire built on the uh, built on power look is not necessarily perfect, um, but most historical empires have been built on the back of force and then institutionalized into power again. Uh, reinforce with force and the American empire has some force in it, but I think that people really underestimate the extent that power is actually the backbone of the American empire. And the reason mm -hmm. that you know that is because China is investing in power and not force in order to, in order to try to undermine it with things like the belt and road initiative um, with things like the, uh, the Baidu satellite system, uh, things of this nature are primarily supposed to be uh, supposed to be building in nature rather than spending in nature. And so I think American imperialism, although America much to its own, much what should be its own chagrin in a way that is actually really bad for it, simply refuses to acknowledge the fact that it is an empire, which causes, <laughs> which causes an almost sort of schizophrenic tendency in its domestic politics. Um, mm -hmm. I actually legitimately think that it is a good example of what a, uh, what good imperialism might look like. And if America actually acknowledged itself as an empire actively, uh, it might be able to do this more effectively and more morally than it does in what we call uh, the the liberal international order. I'm curious if you have any questions for me. Is there anything on your mind? Is there anything you want to expand on? Hmm. Anything? Any final notes? I don't believe. Actually, yeah. Why did you follow me? I'm curious. Why didn't I follow you? It, dude, your tweets are incredible. Like, oh. Oh, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'll take it. I, what I do, the way um, EigenRobot says that he follows people based on their ABI yeah. alone, that's it. And um, I was curious because I, I saw you on the feed or whatever. I always go into somebody's profile and then look at their tweets. And if yeah. the top six tweets for them are just like bad, I don't follow. And that's the, I, I feel bad, but that's the vast majority of people. And if one of them is good, then I'll do a follow. And you had just like six bangers. <laughs> so I was like, it was like the easiest, the easiest follow for me. Hell yeah. Though I will say, uh, so if anyone is curious, I have a somewhat similar following policy. Um, if you can make me laugh out loud in my replies, I will follow you until I see a tweet of yours, which is so bad that makes me unfollow. Yeah. That I think think that that is generally 
that and there, i mean there are other ways that i follow people too but um some people are like why haven't you followed me sometimes i'm like dude uh-huh. you're way too serious in my replies <laughs> like come on yeah. uh so anyway yeah it's it, a lot of it is vibe right yeah. so and then you get these these weird situations where you actually like their replies but don't really like mm-hmm. their tweets and oh yeah that that's, puts me that's in a 100 true yeah 100%. yeah that's a, that puts me in a tough spot mm-hmm. but but it was a great pleasure to have you on teddy thank you for coming on i really appreciate well, it thank you for inviting me this was a great time man that was awesome uh, please remember, you can follow Teddy on his website, rackvelt.com. I'd love if you subscribe to this show at becomingcreature.substack.com. Please remember to like, review, share it with your friends, leave me comments, feedback, anything I could do better. If you want to just send some love, i love to hear it. Thank you to everybody that makes this show possible that contributes in the year there are many ways i love you all i'll see you next time